Jerry Ratcliffe again with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Kevin Bethel is a retired Philadelphia Deputy Police Commissioner and now Chief of School Safety for the Philadelphia School District. We chat about his work rethinking the role of police in schools. This is episode 24 of Reducing Crime, which means the podcast is now officially two years old. Thanks so much for listening over that time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the feedback and support I've received from so many of you. To celebrate, if that's the word, you may have noticed that I've changed up the theme tune. Like the original, it's the theme to an old policing TV show. Did you guess which show it was? I'll post the answer on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. For fun, I'll be changing the theme tune for the next few episodes, unless I get jammed up and run afoul of copyright stuff. In this episode, I chat with Kevin Bethel. Kevin's a retired deputy commissioner in the Philadelphia Police Department, where he commanded patrol operations for the entire city. On retiring in 2016, he served as a Stonely Foundation Fellow and Drexel University Senior Policy Advisor in the area of juvenile justice reform. He's now a Senior Advisor and Chief of School Safety for the Philadelphia School District. He's developed a school diversion program within that system. It diverts first-time low-level juvenile offenders to other programs within the Department of Human Services. This diversion approach has reduced the number of school arrests by 71%. He testified before the President's 21st Century Task Force on the need for a concerted effort by law enforcement leaders to address the school-to-prison pipeline across the nation. He serves on the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency Disproportionate Minority Contact Subcommittee and is a former member of the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Law and Justice. Recorded in early March, before the recent shocking and disturbing events that shook the US, we had a socially distant chat in his beautiful garden north of Philadelphia. We were supposed to talk about his current work addressing school safety in the school-to-prison pipeline, and don't worry, we do get to that. But we started off chatting about his 30 years in the Philadelphia Police Department and his time working with Commissioner Chuck Ramsey. He had some heartfelt insights into mentorship, data-driven policing, and the stress of police leadership. So I left them in. They're important. I'm like having one that patio outdoor space, but having two is just fucking flash at yeah, this point. Yeah, it's a blessing when I bought the house. I didn't it's nice to have a respite, right? Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. I enjoy the respite. So what is this a part of? <laughs> in other words, why am I doing this? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think what was what kind of turned it around for me was when Philly PD put my intelligence-led policing book on the promotion exam. Okay. And I started to read some online reviews of cops going, yeah. this sucks, and I'm going, right. I don't blame you, it does right, suck. Right, right. Because it was never written for those guys. Right. So I wrote Reducing Crime, a companion for police leaders, to be a, okay. more of a promotion-type book. Right. And then I was thinking, well, if you're going to reach out to those kind of people with stuff that's interesting, right. they're not going to read academic journal articles. Right. But they might listen to a podcast. Okay. So it's like a monthly podcast. Okay. Okay. I ain't worried about it, Jerry. I've been saying, after all these years, I'm like Ramsey after a while. Just, it is what it is, brother. I don't have as many filters as I used to. Well, that's anyway. good. How long did you do in Philly PD? Be 30. Did you miss it? There's times. The people I still stay connected to. Um, as it relates to the work and the stress. The stress, do. say it's not so. <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, it's times I do. Sometimes when I, especially when I saw they were floundering for a minute there, I was like, you know, did I make the right decision not to come back? But I'm, I'm in a good place. 
I mean, it was you and Ramsey and Nola and all those guys, and it was a hell of a time to be in a leadership role in Philadelphia. I told people, man, to this day, Jerry, I can't tell you how blessed I was to be working under Ramsey. If I remember correctly, Ramsey brought you up skipping a couple of ranks, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I was a captain, but I knew he was auditioning. And he brought uh, you straight up to deputy commissioner. Yeah, I think that was part of his model, right? Bring some young guns up. And he had saw some of my stuff because I had been doing a lot of stuff when I was in South Philly. And I had a town hall, man. I remember I had like 300 people show up. When he did his town hall, they gave me a standing ovation. You know what I mean? Best experience of my entire career. I had to do it all over as a captain in the district. Yeah? Yeah, because it's just people just so appreciate it. Just you working for them, you know, supporting them, loving them up. Then you get up higher rank, it was expected. You were expected. There, you were rewarded. Right. Every time you did a, a living room meeting or sat on the stoop, you know, I used to walk through the neighborhood with my community relations officer and we just walk through and just sit down, just walk through the neighborhood. We pick a route and let's just walk. And people and were just, people just they were shocking me. Yeah, the yeah, I can't believe, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? But at the end, man, love those folks, man. Love them to death. Still this day. Yeah. But when you get higher up, there are no wins. It's just you're trying to avoid losses. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. I had to adopt that, man. You know, Ramsey was tenacious, right? You know, he came in, he was given a, a directive from the mayor. It, I always felt, understood the pressure he was under, yeah. but also knew I love working for him. You know what I mean? He's quite thing. unique in terms of police leaders. <sighs> yeah, man, that's, a, that's an understatement. Near the end of my career, I used to sit there because I would sit across from him. And so I always tried to figure out what he was going to do. And I knew the better I got to predicting what he would do, the better I felt I was getting. But he was always good coming back, telling me the why. You know, I'm always a young guy. I want to know the why, why, why. Yeah. Why'd you do it that way? I mean, sometimes we sit there for an hour, man. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why you? And he would just sit there and walk me through the why. That's mentorship, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Even though he was not old enough to be my father, my father left, you know, when I was a young puppy, man, in my eight or nine years old. So he actually would become like a father figure to me because of his presence. You know what I mean? And the fact that he would take so much time with me. You know what I mean? I don't think people realize how much mentoring he would give me because I stayed late. I, I worked late. Mm -hmm. I worked early, got in early and stayed late. And so when he stayed late, he always drifted over my office. I learned to turn up to headquarters as late as, late as possible in the afternoon. <laughs> right. Find somebody's sofa to right. sit on and then yeah. just learn so yeah, much, just yeah, listen yeah. to people talking. Yeah, yeah. But he was just, uh, he just was good. He was to this day. I mean, we're still very close and his yeah. energy, I mean, he's been in policing over 50 years. His energy levels are off the charts, right? Yeah. You know, not often you find folks who've gone through generational change. They usually kind of set in their ways and kind of after a while, they just can't get them to change their ways. Mm -hmm. But here's a guy who was able to adapt, right? He's like, he wasn't going to turn away from research. He wasn't going to turn away from new technology. He wasn't, he was going to dive right into it. Because most of us, as we get older, as you know, we get kind of set in our ways and and kind of feel this is, has to be this way. So you miss the good stuff. What are the parts you don't miss? The grind. Uh, I don't think people realize the toll it takes on you physically. You know, you know, it's one thing when I was a young puppy in 40s and 30s running around. Now I'm entering my 50s and every time I go to the doctor, I got some new malady that's popping up, you know, and you're sitting there saying, he's looking at you. Okay, the only thing I can point to is stress. I mean, you were at the top three in the fourth largest police department in the United States in a city with 25% poverty and a violent crime problem. Yeah, and you take it personally. And I mean, I grew up in a city. I, I, I want I want it to stop. So you give to get, and what you give is 
your family life and your health and quality of life, all that stuff wrapped together, you, you start to lose. And then you look up and you're like, I don't have that many friends because I, to get it done, you got to push people. It won't work if I'm sitting there, we're, we're loving and hugging, right? You know, paramilitary department. You know what I mean? So you just felt like you always had to lean forward and you're always pushing. And so you, your circle gets tighter. You know, you're not home, you're watching your kids grow up and you're missing all the events and you're not around. And so that's the part that you can't get back. I have a 30 year old man and she looks at me like, you know, you weren't there. You know what I mean? She loves me, I love her, but I realized I wasn't there for her. You know what I mean? So, so you, you give up if you really do it right. And some people can come in at nine and go at four, and, but if you really dive into it headstrong, like you do your work, you keep swimming, man, but you don't see it at the end of the pool. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, where's the brake pad? There's no brake pad. You know what I mean? It's always the gas. How'd you pace yourself for that kind of thing then? What would you do differently? Um, if I did it differently now, I think I would delegate more. I took a lot on myself, so delegation, it's okay. You can't win them all, you know what I mean? Yeah. Don't take it personally and carve out a time. It's okay to take a week's vacation, you know, taking four days in the summer. You leave on a Friday and you come back on a Monday. Or, or you do, when you do do that one week, you're taking your phone with you and you're still checking every, every you know what I mean? And I've seen some folks have been able to do that. I never learned that, learned how to, to take a moment and to recharge. Well, Philadelphia, and I don't think any of the big cities give you a moment unless you actively grab it. I, I remember constantly sitting in meetings with you guys, and the thing was constantly going because everybody got notified every time there was a shooting. And it's like, we get 2,000 shootings a year. Hundreds of people just staring at their phones every time there's a shooting. Yeah, and then when you work with the executive team, you know, Ramsey didn't take off. You know, Rich didn't take off. So then it became like this cascading effect. All right, if your bosses ain't taking time off, the expectation that I'm supposed to be here. So at some point, I did, I got my week. I did one week a year, you know what I mean, vacation. That's just nuts. <laughs> one week a year. No, that's crazy. And that didn't make any sense, you know what I mean? If I had to do it all over again, it's okay to find time for yourself. It's healthy, right? Did it feel like you couldn't step back from it? You, I, I never felt I could step out because you got to remember, you know, we go through this transformation. Uh, it takes about four years for us to really kind of get to be data driven, right? I mean, you know, obviously, Commissioner comes with a plan. Nola's trying to really work that plan, right? No, and, Nola you know, Joyce, yeah, the yeah, Nola, head of strategic initiatives at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't think about it at the time. And, you know, early in the process, oh, what was this civilian? How's she going to tell me what to do? And, but then I just watch. And she never interfered in my space, right? She never came in, even though she had the, the you know, Commissioner Ramsey's ear. She, always, she, has, she has the pedigree as well. She has the background. Yeah, but she just, just the way she did it, man. It was just a subtle chipping away. I remember her talking about, Kate, Kate asked who, what, when, where, and why with data. Like, let data tell you when to put the officers there. Let data tell you why you put the officers there. Let the data tell you how many you should put there. You know what I mean? And I'm sorry, looking down, I'm like, that just makes sense. You know what I mean? And, and so as we, you know, when the light bulb goes in, when we, we did the work around the Remember our early work around the footbeats? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like... The Philadelphia yeah, Foot Patrol like, experiment. I don't want to do the footbeats. I don't want to do the footbeats. And this is not, this ain't going to work. I know what he wants. You know, but then I remember calling you and say, Jerry, you know, after the fact, right? I think, can we, can we just like take a look at this? So we, it turns into this huge study. But I walked away from that study saying, it works. If you just be patient, right? If you allow the data to, to kind of drive you, you could find that sweet spot. Was that like the epiphany moment for you about really sort of understanding the value of data and policing? Because lots of police leaders never get there. 
I think, you know, it was funny going through that process with you because it was a control group. So I'm like, control groups? What's a, what's a control group? And yeah, I'm a cop, right? Control groups. We don't leave stuff alone and let <laughs> something happen here. You know what I mean? And uh, it, it, was just a, it was just a slow awakening. It wasn't one moment. I can't say to say like one moment I looked down, but it was just these little pieces sitting down with the GIS mappers and just talking to them. I would go downstairs and talk to them. And, you know, they weren't cops, but they, they were doing all these dots on the map. And I would start throwing these hypotheses. Oh, I wonder if I had that. I'd go on the crime briefing and one of the GIS guys or one of the women would look over and say, hey, click on that layer. And all of a sudden I see this layer. Oh, my goodness. And then all of a sudden, man, I'd be sitting at my desk sometimes and every thought, data thought that came in my mind, I'd run downstairs. Hey, can we put this on? Can we put this on? I mean, actually, you know, I come into the mapping environment and we're in a comstat. I want to know how many cops are working 4 to 12. I want to know where they were here. I want to know where they were there. Do you think there's value then in having the analysis unit, the analysis sections really close to the headquarters wing? Yeah, it is the fuel that drives the engine. I mean, you can, you can, I can have the fanciest car out here, but if I don't got no gas in it, <laughs> it could be rocket fuel if you, if you put it in it right, you know? I think for a lot of leaders, though, isn't that sometimes a hard sell? They've got 20, 25 years in night. They know what's going on. You were essentially running one of the biggest departments in the country, and it took a while for you to get there. Yeah, I used to be the anecdotal. Yeah, I knew. Oh, yeah, you know, I saw it. I could see it. Yeah, but I just saw the moment. Uh, I could read that it was, you know, there was a shooting at 53rd in Chester today. Oh, okay. And I can remember anecdotally there was a shooting maybe last week. Didn't we have a shooting there last week? But I couldn't see a trend that if I went back five years, and guess what? The data says that I've had 10 homicides at that corner. Hmm. And the data says that all these men and women are from the same subset of groups or organizations. The or same gangs. network, yep. Yeah, then guess what? This guy was with the other guy when he was shot. All of that connectivity, that link analysis work, all of that. You can't keep all of that in your head. You can't keep all that in your head. Not for the sixth largest city in the country. (laughs) Hey, listen, I I used to try, you know, okay, from narcotics, I can remember a lot of the the, the players in the field, but it was another thing to be able to use data. And what data gave you the ability to fight back all of the the BS. Right. You know what I mean? So that a guy who's sitting there and BSing me at the table, I'm doing this. Oh, really? The data made me be able to say, well, let me show you what really is going on. And what it helped us do was turn the department around because now it wasn't going to be an organization led by what we felt and you could see the results. So when we started to use data to say these little micro areas and all the work we did, right, with fender focus work and all that oh, stuff, yeah. you say, well, listen, if you go in here and you do this and you do this and then you're looking at the trend lines and say, hey, guess what? We went two months without a shooting. We've gone three months without a shooting. People start to say, oh, well, I want a little bit of that. I remember sitting in a Comstat meeting that you were running and a captain we both know who will remain nameless <laughs> for his memory was uh was up there saying oh yeah well i've got my bike patrols and i got my foot patrols right in this this area right and you just asked lynn to press one of the buttons and up came where those bike patrols and those foot patrols have been doing all their pedestrian stops and their tickets and it was nowhere near that area right. and i think you just went what do you see here? And right. I just remember the captain doing a fantastic impression of a goldfish. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> they would. And, and, and it was like that for the beginning, in the early stages, getting the buy-in from them. It was a kind of brutal process, right? I mean, you know, you grow up with these guys, but you know, if I'm going to accomplish the goals, I mean, 
it was going to have to be hard. But part of that data was, was really being able to click on a dot. And, you know, at some point I even had every car where it would be. It seems like it's key to that accountability that Comstat was really about. Comstat wasn't run like that for us for a long time. It was a gotcha moment. You come in yeah. there, you know, you get teed up on what questions you're going to get asked. I got rid of all that. I Listen, you, you need to know all your crime, right? I'm not going to give you uh, the answers to the test. Just don't bullshit yeah. though. Yeah, Jerry, I was a captain in the 17th district. Coming to my comm set, my 30-day comm set, I've had 10 homicides, 25 shootings, and they asked me a theft model question. And I'm looking at uh, Deputy Commissioner uh, Pat Fox, and I'm like, I can't tell you anything about theft models. Everybody's looking at me like, you're crazy, right? I have not looked at one theft model. I've been trying to deal with my violence, and I will make sure I pay attention next period. But I think everybody in the room looked like, is he going to get away with it? And she looked at me, she says, okay, Kevin. What's really lost on so many people who are in the command seat in Comstat meetings is the questions that you ask set the tone as to what people are going to go and do. Absolutely. If you ask about bullshit stuff, you're going to drive the department and the district to go and chase... Chase BS, you know what I mean? Shoplifters while there are shootings going on around the corner. For me, it was the most critical meeting I would ever have all I had to do was ask a question at the first session and then it just permeated across the department because it would just infect the department. And so I was relentless in that. Right. I, I read every white paper. These are the reports that are written about the shootings and the, yeah, the, so the serious the crimes. Reports, I read every one. I felt in fairness to them that I need to be just as prepared coming into the crime briefing as they were because I thought it was fair to them. Yeah. That if they felt like they were valued, that I took the time to really see what was going on. You're a deputy commissioner, Philadelphia Police Department. You're doing Comstat, it's violent crime, it's shootings. What got you into working around policing of schools and this whole area around oh, the, the school to prison pipeline? Well, I know the answer, but it's sometimes I figure out how did I get here? I like to be in everything. The crime fighting was not getting easier, but was getting a little bit easier. You know what I mean? It was uh, becoming it, a bit rote. Yeah, I guess it was just. I mean, I'm enjoying it, right? We're having a nice ride. But I've, I've always had this yearning around young people. Uh, even when I was a captain in the district, I had a young mentee that I had from when I was in South Philly. And so I, I get asked to be a part of a national program from uh, Office of Juvenile Justice programs around uh, law enforcement leaders in juvenile justice. You know, it just came out of the blue at you. It just came out of the blue and, you know, and, um, and so I make the decision that you know, I'll be participating, get to travel a little bit. They, they fly us out to Chicago and I'm in this room with all these law enforcement leaders and, and they're conducting these programs talking about juvenile justice. And from there, man, it just, I just started to get a little interest. I really wasn't sure initially, and then I meet a, an amazing judge, uh, Stephen uh, Teske, out of Clayton County, Georgia. Love this guy, man, but he uh, started to really talk about the school-to-prison pipeline and the work he was doing in his county and how many kids were getting locked up for these low-level fences. I'm like, get locked up, but like, in, I think at the time, in his jurisdiction, just disrespecting a police officer could result in an arrest. And I was like, shocked. Like, really? I mean, in Philadelphia, disrespecting a police officer is like a rite of passage. It's <laughs> yeah, not something you yeah, get arrested yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, old days, but today, yeah, it was. And, and I mean, he really challenged me. And I was really good friends with Rob Listenby, who was first assistant at the DA's office now. And, but he also served as the administrator for the Office of Juvenile Justice Prevention. He was, he was appointed by Obama. He knew I was starting to get this interest in juveniles, so he rightfully started to fuel, you know, send me to these places. I was part of the Academy of Science, did a, a big program around adolescent development, and next thing I know, man, my light bulb was just on. I come back, and I just feel this yearning, man, that I have to do something different with our juveniles, and 
I oversaw the schools as a part of, came under my umbrella and came back and data. I pulled the data. I mean, I tell people that's why data is so important. Jerry, I pulled this data, man, and I almost was, I was just devastated, man. You know, I go back because the judge, he kept saying, man, go, go, go look at your place, man. See, what are you doing in Philly? I mean, you have an opportunity, you're a big city. You could set the trend, you know. What people say and what the data says can be so different. Uh, it's so different, Jerry. And I, I sit there and I, I, I get this data by my guys, you know, the GIS guys and Kevin Thomas, some guys. Well, why don't we pull per capita numbers? Then I find my smallest schools, some of them are worse than my big schools when you took their per capita numbers. And, and I'm looking down and I said, are you kidding me? In 2013, I lock up five or 600 kids for fighting in school. Especially for fighting? Cops come and take people away. We lock up kids for coming to school with a pair of scissors. Well, I think other countries, people are just amazed that we have police officers in schools at all. How did that happen? Well, it takes you back to the Gun-Free Act. I mean, you know, in response to trying to address active shooters and these, these incidents in schools, federal government comes and says, we're going to put the Gun-Free Act. No guns in school. And listen, I think everybody accepts that, except for a law enforcement officer, a gun in school. But then the downstream implications of that are well, how do we find who has a gun? In some cases, like our jurisdiction, well, actually Philly was a little bit different. They did have two shootings in their schools. And so even before the Gun-Free Act, they put metal detectors in the high schools. But most places, we're gonna bring the gun, you know, metal detectors in, that's gonna bring additional law enforcement into the space. You know, and then the federal government, right, is pushing for SROs in schools and offering funding. School resource school officers. School resource officers to come into the school setting. So they're funding that. And then they've been in that setting going back to I think even the early 50s with Detroit was when I think one of the first locales to have a school resource officer. But it just accelerates the process. And, and next, you know, I tell people, what do you expect when you put a law enforcement officer in there in a school? Like, you shouldn't be surprised that they're going to arrest people. It's what we're built to do. That's it's what we, pretty much the tool that we give yeah, police what, officers. Yeah, yeah, that's what we do, right? That's what we are trained to do is, is to lock people up. In a previous episode of this podcast, Lorraine Maserol's uh, is a researcher in Australia talking about work that she's doing with Queensland police and the schools and the police are actually teaching them about uh, procedural justice. Right. And have we found once you put police officers in the schools, it's just easy for the school systems and the teachers to kind of go, OK, all of this is your problem now. You know, I, I came in with some of those early biases, right? I came in thinking that it was a, a principal problem, a teacher problem, administrator problem. But one of the things I, I started to realize, it was a problem just like anything else. When you don't properly fund the system, when you don't give them the ability, the tools. I'm doing a project in, in Atlanta and I walk in and we're talking about a diversion program. And in the school, they had a psychologist, two counselors, a social worker. And I'm like, whoa. In one school. In one school, right? And, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And so you start to realize, particularly in Philadelphia, where such a poor city and the school district was underfunded for so many years that they sit there now and the teacher who has a kid who's got all these issues and not anything in between. And so when that behavior manifests itself to a position where it becomes a criminal behavior, or even in some cases, a code of conduct of behavior and the officer responds and it turns into a criminal issue when he takes them out, I started to have to check myself and say, you know, part of the system, it drove it that way because there was nothing. Now that has changed significantly, right? Dr. Height has done a lot. So there's a lot of programming. The, the head of the school districts yeah, in Philadelphia. Yeah, Dr. Height, yeah, Bill Height. And, and the school district has really changed and evolved and with trauma care and positive behavior interventions and support, I believe that's it, PBIS, 
where you can have different tiers of support for young people. Does this come on all under the umbrella of diversion? No, no. I think diversion still sits over as that other leg, right? That other area where the behavior still rises out of all the interventions you're doing. I mean, but at least there's a more layered approach where, you know, you don't have to immediately grab the officer or the school officer at the school and say, hey, I need you to solve this issue. You now can turn inward to have all of these programs available. So this is before we call the officer. But what can be done in terms of diversion once the officer gets involved? What I learned is really up to the law enforcement entity and the school district how much you'll tolerate. With the Philadelphia Police Department, when I was there, I mean, you really just kind of sit down and, and you really have kind of a conversation. You know, for example, in the state of Pennsylvania, the minimum age for arresting a child is 10 years of age. So you see, so you close your eyes and you think about 10-year-old child. And you say, well, what would I lock up a 10-year-old child for? I mean, two 10-year-olds get in a fight? No. Two 10-year-olds stole something in the school. I mean, you start to realize that something was just not aligning. So our ability to kind of sit out there and delineate what, what offenses do we not? And so we really just went through this process. We recognize it using data that those kids represented 2%. Three percent right. of our kids. So you could actually look at all the data and decide if, if this is where we draw the line. Oh yeah, absolutely. this is what the implications are going to be in terms of how many arrests we're likely to make and how absolutely. many to do, we deal with, and that's where you can kind of set the rule. Okay, I, if we set the line here, I, I can go home and sleep at night. And that's exactly how we did it. I looked down on the sheet. And I said, well, listen, if I take off a kid coming to school with scissors, if I take off young ladies who come in with mace. No take one, off and arrest you so mean? Take, take, I mean, yeah, if I stop arresting kids for coming in with scissors, stop arresting kids coming with fights, stop arresting young girls coming with mace as a protective device. How about I stop arresting young people who get suspended the day before and show up to school and we charge them with trespassing? Eh, well, we won't do that either. 65, 70% of our, our 1,600 arrests were those. Right. But then how do the schools deal with the kids that get suspended and then turn up the next day? We don't charge them, right? We'll, we'll talk to the kid. I mean, we don't even see that as a divertible issue anymore. Those cases you handle in a more humane way. Because I tell people, here's what I would tell people. If you think a child gets on the bus, drives an hour you know, on the bus and has to transfer to show up at a school, maybe an hour away from their home, comes to that school to get arrested. That's just not true. There's got to be something about that school it causes that child to get up every day and come to that space. And so not only do you, through the diversion process, you say, hey, I'm not gonna rest. You also bring the data and the science together that talks about adolescent development and taking a more developmental approach. I think for some of the kids, it may be it's the safest place for them. Safest place for them. As a city with so much violence and so much poverty, those kids come into our system and they represent a large percentage of our kids coming from single parent homes who struggle to eat every day, who are getting beaten and abused, and I, I, God knows what happens to them. And then they come into our, and school should be a safe place. It should be a haven for them to feel that they're not under attack or under surveillance, and, and yet they're going to make stupid mistakes. You've told me in the past that, and I throw that in because that's my bullshit way of saying you sent me a text message to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine, see, I'm going to edit this bit out, you no, see. No, no, I know you are. <laughs> An arrest doesn't just affect the kid, it also has some kind of collateral damage as well. Yeah, you know, what I would come to learn, I, you know, you hear this term school to prison pipeline and you're kind of like, well, that, you know, you get defensive. You know, that's not what I'm trying to do, you know. I, and we build our systems, particularly our policing system on accountability. You, you do something bad, you have to pay for it. Absolutely. And, and you raise and, that way. And that's not the goal. In some cases, yes. But maybe the goal is also the bigger picture aim is we're trying to prevent this happening again, right? Yeah. And, and you don't think in, in those terms, right? You think that, you know, action, consequence, stops action. 
But then you look down, you say, well, we're using data, right? So I look back, I said, well, we've been locking up 16, 17, 1800 kids a year in the school district. So if our consequence model was working, the data should be trending downward, right? <laughs> that these kids learn from those kids and those kids say, well, I don't want to be like him, so I'm not going to do that. So we're not going to have those arrests in the schools. And then you look down and you say, well, we have just as many arrests every year. So clearly this model doesn't work. Right? <laughs> I was just amused at the idea that learning from data, shocking, uh, come yeah, on. Yeah, That's not yeah, how we do know. public policy. No, I know, I know, I know. What I would learn over as I went through this process is that I arrest this kid and you think it's no big deal, right? You know, kid gets locked up and the next day he goes to his intake hearing. Now, the DA's office, in our case here in Philadelphia, the DA's office had created a great program, a youth aid panel. So many of those kids would go through that diversion model. That kid, though, if he didn't complete the program, would go before a judge or he went right to the judge. So the kid who came to school with a knife may not be diverted, he goes before the judge. And you start to realize, well, what happens when he does that? Not only does he have to deal with the fines and fees that come from that, the judge may say, you know what? Uh, well, I'm gonna put you on probation. I met a child one time, a young person, had been on probation for five years because every time he got in trouble, stemming from a case where he got locked up in school, his probation would just keep getting continued. Or whether the kid I locked up for a disorderly, or summary offense for a disorderly conduct, who did not get adjudicated delinquent and went into the adult court, a $300 fine. But if he had money, he could go to a Saturday program and get that expunged. If he didn't, prior to five years ago, they couldn't even get that expunged from their record. So they live with that all the way into their adulthoods as they apply for a job. So I started to realize the sheer consequences of that. They do this one thing and they're in the system and that's it, that's them. That's it, they've seen it, right? They've seen their grandmother, their, their mom, their, their brother, their sister, their cousin, or whole family, you know, and so, uh-oh, tag I met. I get that fine number. It's not a social security number, it's a photo number. I remember a guy that uh, I arrested once in the East End of London, right. and I'm filling out the paperwork and he says, I know how long it takes to get my criminal records office number, my CRO number, or here it is, and he rolls his shirt sleeve up, <laughs> right. and he had his criminal records right. office number tattooed on his right. arm, because right. he said it saved the processing time every right. time he got nicked. Right. And, and, and so you start to realize the impact it has, especially on our younger children. But have you found that that's a hard sell to turn around to people who have got strongly held views about how things should be and you turn up with the data that says something different that they struggle to appreciate that? I think there is, but I think the way you, you get that is you make them a part of the process, right? You know, it can't be my way, data way, and know your way. It's my way, the data, but walk that walk with me. You know, so I remember bringing in 84 school officers into, this, into a meeting and having that conversation that I have this idea that I want to change how we do with young people. And, you know, right away there's immediate resistance because they have not been exposed to anything different. Right. They felt that, hey, listen, we were meeting the demands of the system. Well, you have to have that willingness to be open to the possibility that what we're doing doesn't work. And that, was, that's, yeah. a hard that's a hard ask for some people. I, I tell you what, I, I, was, I made that conclusion already that it wasn't working. You know what we were doing? Wasting a lot of people's time. We process a kid for an incident and, and then the DA's office sends them to the youth aid panel. You know what I said about that? I said, well then, if I go through all this processing, I take a kid into the cell block, I fingerprint him, photograph him, hold him a cell block, and I charge him. And the next day he goes into his intake hearing and then when he meets with the DA's office, they say, ah, oh, you don't need to go to see a judge. You can go back out here to the community to our youth aid panel. And if you do with the youth aid panel, you won't have to, well, that's not even money, right? For so the youth aid panel is free, it's just diverted. Uh, if they stay out of trouble, they get their record expunged. 
my question was, so then why did I need to arrest the kid if you send him out here to a community program and I don't need to do any of that? And I don't need to inflict the trauma that that arrest puts on the child in addition to the consequences that go with it. The amount Absolutely. of time it takes, how many people earning how much, and costing how much an hour <laughs> yeah, throughout absolutely. the whole process. Yeah, yeah. And for me, for me personally, it, it became a thing about being humane and, and being fair and being just. But, but one thing we knew going in, it was the right thing to do. And part of what I also recognized, I failed the men and women who worked for me. I sat in a room with 84 men and women talking about- These are, I wanted, these are your these are police school, officers these are, who work these are in schools. Fill up your police officers who support the schools. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at them and they got it. They wanted it. They didn't like locking up 10 year old kids. I mean, they knew that the system should have been better, but I recognized my failure to not give them a different tool. Are some places taking a zero tolerance approach? I think there are. I think there are some places that still take zero tolerance as an approach. And I think it's wrong. You know, I remember doing the zero tolerance when we were going to do the broken windows theory. And, and we're, at the time, we were, were working under uh, Commissioner Timoney and, and... John Timoney, that's yeah, going way back. And, yeah, going back. And, and, you know, we're going to do this zero tolerance, quality of life offenses. And, I mean, we're out there every day, man. Anything that's, you know, drinking on the highway, spinning on the highway, littering, I mean, anything, you know. And what we're doing in the community is kind of a, kind of a bookend. It, it, it was a match, right? The schools doing zero tolerance in the schools. We're out in the community doing zero tolerance but we also recognize the, the impacts of that as well. You know, that, that you know, when you put so much pressure on a, on a system at some point, it blows. You see that across the nation when we have these flare-ups after police shootings and you know, this zero tolerance mentality. I don't know what that is. I, I don't know if that's even possible <laughs> to have zero tolerance. You know, what's left on the sidelines, empathy and, and understanding and and really even the data, right? Because even though the data may, you may be driving to this zero level, but you know, do you evaluate the, the collateral damage that comes with that? I think that the issue to some degree is that we don't think that there are consequences, but that's only because we're not measuring them. Yeah. It took me a moment to get there too, you know what I mean? You know what I mean, what is the consequences? Because it takes work, right? As you know, it, it, it takes, you have to look within yourself and say, you know, I get it. I may not find the answer I want, but I need to find the answer, right? Because, it, you know, just sitting there and ignoring it, and then you're sitting in a meeting where someone pulls the raw data off of a website, and next you know, you got a reporter sitting in front of you and say, hey, can I share this with you? Hey, you do know, like, you locked up 10,000 people this year, and they're all African-American, or they're all Latino, or they're all this. There is the issue around open data is that there's a good chance that it's going to drive more data driven policy making because it's easy to hold people accountable if the data are publicly available. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, yeah, I didn't ever want to be surprised. Right. And, and so it was good that we were always tracking that to, to see. I don't think we were perfect at it. I mean, we were still had our growing pains and probably in policing it will continue to be that way. It's hard to kind of say, especially when you see good numbers, you know, everybody's looking, crime's coming down. No one wants to know, you know, sometimes folks purposely don't want to know the answer. I think a lot of police leaders I've spoken to go, you know what, we're used to bad news. We just don't want surprises. Yeah, yeah, well, that was Ramsey's mandate, right? He'll, he'll work with the uh, researchers all day long, but just don't tell me two years later that I did something stupid. Let me know kind of, you know, I think it worked. It opened up the door for us to be comfortable to work in that space. And, and, and I think folks make a mistake when they go back into their bunkers. And, and don't want to be data driven or have somebody from a third person. I, I remember telling you this, I mean, I, 
I could write, I could sit there and write, not like you, but but an article about foot beats. Nobody gonna listen to me. But if I if Temple University, Jerry Radcliffe and the, and the criminal justice department writes about it, everybody and their mother. I wouldn't go that far. Well, but I'm just saying, <laughs> but, but, you, but you see the network that you have able to spread that across and those universities go to their law enforcement and say, hey, maybe we could do something like this. Well, yeah, I, I don't I think, think it's it, as much that. I don't think I, I certainly don't think I have that much credibility, but I think the, the issue to some degrees is it's really difficult to be a prophet in your own land. You know, people are skeptical of police departments Absolutely. that do their own evaluations, where right. if a third well, party comes yeah. in from outside, right. Right. it is easier to get a third party in to give you that legitimacy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that you said it more eloquently, but that's where I was going. If, if you could determine for the country, for police officers and schools, school resource officers, what, what would be the most important training that we should give them? I, I think first and foremost is ongoing training, just like any of the other professions. But I we don't do that, that in policing, hardly ever. I know, and, and that's the challenge, right? Here, here, here's what I tell folks. If you're going to have an adult in a child setting, then they need to be trained how to understand that child. You know what I mean? It's like no different than a child care worker. I mean, you, you, you're not going to put the plumber in their child care center and, and, and have them work with kids with no knowledge. And, and so I think the core areas are adolescent development and how to de-escalate situations, you know, trauma training. You know, all of those things that oftentimes policing has shied away from, those soft skills, are incredibly necessary in a school setting. And we fail our men and women, you know, when we put them in a setting and don't provide them with that level of training. But in, in so many places in the country, you just go from being mainstream policing to being assigned to the school and good luck. Yeah, and then we, we sit back and we're surprised when we see uh, these national stories that come up where an officer's used force uh, to, to hold a child. Putting eight-year-olds in handcuffs and stuff yeah, like that. I mean, yeah. and, and because we haven't given them the tools. I mean, I, I remember what some years ago, you know, the, the incident, I think, in South Carolina or, you know, I mean, where they have the, you know, this, the officer come in and, and he's pulling a curl out of a young lady out of the chair. I mean, you know, and I say, you know, why you have administrators standing around watching him do that. First, the training also says that I shouldn't be in those spaces for code of conduct issues, right? So we start there. What, what should I, what is my role and responsibilities in this setting? I mean, I shouldn't be called in a classroom to take a kid who doesn't want to put his hoodie off. Start by managing the situation before we even think about the police. Yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be multiple layers. And, and then when you bring that officer in this, into that space, the more trained he is, the better he is, she is prepared to, to deal with the complexity of our kids. But sometimes, man, you get to that place at the end, you'd be surprised that kid will come back tomorrow and say, hey, how you doing, officer? Yeah, I mean, he'll respect you, he'll appreciate you, and, and he'll be a different time. Next time you come up, all you have to do is say his name. Hey, Jerry, knock it off. Oh, that's Officer Smith. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that when I was at school. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but he's not a bad guy, right? And, and it's not about his uniform or his title, it's how he treated him. So, Sounds like you're enjoying it. I, let me tell you something, man. Uh, uh, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. I've always felt I have an opportunity now to impact so many young people's lives, whether it be the school district where I, I'm at now uh, or the work I've done nationally to kind of say, yeah, I sit up in the front of the big bad chiefs and tell them, I said, listen, I can tell you my world. I've done it all. I've locked up guys. I've been the guy who pressed the buttons, who've done all that, the stop and frisk and been involved in all that. But I also can be that guy who sits there and says, you know what? As much pressure as we put on the system, there has to be outlets. 
I, I give you, when you look at data, right? I, I remember looking down at data and talking to my guys and say, you know what, I have 100% clearance on arrests in schools. I got a 20% clearance on the 1,500 shootings I had last year. You know what I mean? But I, I got a school, kid comes in, kid got this, lock kid up, kid comes in, 100% clearance. Yeah, I mean, what does that say? You know? yeah. That's when we make the output the goal, not the, the outcome, which is what's the, yeah, the, yeah. the harm reduction and the safety of the community. And, 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 I think, and I think what hopefully, as we continue to do the research, just through can the process turn into a longitudinal study, right? So, Look at you using yeah, all the yeah, research yeah, terms. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true, man. But it's, it's, Welcome to the dark yeah, side, no, brother Kevin. No, no, I, could, I don't know all that language. I don't know the equations, though. That, that stuff drives me crazy. I don't know how you get that. My hope is that I can show those naysayers at the end of the road to say, hey, get, let's, but look at this. This kid that I didn't lock up in ninth grade made it through high school, you know, and the data says, hey, listen, you know, we only know 35% of the nation have degrees, right? And the majority of our nation does not. That getting him or her on the other side set them up for all those things that they can do. Because I always tell people, I say, this is your next person who could kill a cop. This is the next person to kill anyone. I mean, we look at some of the raw data for the kids we were locking up, and even the ones we locked up now, some of them have already committed murder. Some have already been murdered. Mm -hmm. uh, many of them have already been shot. And so we can demonstrate that, hey, guess what? That kid that you don't lock up for that low-level offense made it through. And I, I tell people the added bonus, and, and Nola Joyce said this to me one time, which I thought I never thought through. She said, Kev, but this can change generations. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, I mean, if, if an officer works in an area or in a city for 10 years, you know, we've had run-ins with 23-year-olds, 25-year-olds. You know, how we deal with now with the 13 and the 15-year-olds absolutely was going to have an impact on how we're dealing with them when they're 23 and 25. And absolutely. those interactions, those small interactions, the small differences might make a big change. Yeah, I mean, the schools are like a little incubators, man. You, I mean, you know, if, you know, we started a youth court program and watch the young people talk to other young people, sharing their stories and, you know, the, why they sometimes do what they do. So it, it's... It's been a great experience, man. It's been a great ride for me, and uh, I'm fortunate enough to be continuing on that ride. We'll see where we go, man. Well, I don't say this about many people, but uh, you're a bit of an inspiration, mate. I think when I grow up, I want to be you. Oh, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I want the accent, then I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll take your accent, and we can switch <laughs> for a day, see how that goes, you know. Kevin, thank you very much. No, I appreciate it, Jerry. You know, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk about what we're doing. You've been listening to episode 24 of Reducing Crime, recorded just outside Philadelphia in March 2020. Other episodes lurk at reducingcrime.com or pretty much anywhere else. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Be safe and best of luck. Reducing Crime.